building designed to scare, disgust and terrify. Creepy lifelike mannequins are made up like torture victims or for a cannibalistic feast. Actors tell stories of the darkest periods in the history of this city, a city that we visited on two previous podcast episodes. However, could this building actually be haunted? I investigated this location a decade ago and received the biggest fright of my life. Tonight, join me as after dark, when it's closed to the public, we dare to enter the Edinburgh Dungeon. Welcome to episode 13 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location. And of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week, we return to Edinburgh, Scotland, and ask the question, just how haunted is the Edinburgh Dungeon? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. So usually I'd start by telling you of the long bloody history of the location, such as the Roman Colosseum dating back almost 2,000 years, Chillingham Castle, the 12th century fortress where so much torture and murder took place, or the Tower of London, founded by the Normans following the conquest of England in the 11th century. However, this is a little awkward, as this location doesn't have 2,000 years of history. It barely has two decades of history, and not of it is particularly dark or scary. However, it is believed to be haunted, and I found out firsthand back in 2012 that there seems to be far more to this building which is scary by design than meets the eye. So what is the Edinburgh Dungeon? The Edinburgh Dungeon is one of eight dungeons in Europe, the others being the Amsterdam Dungeon, the Berlin Dungeon, 
the Blackpool Tower Dungeon, the Castle Dungeon at Warwick Castle, Hamburg Dungeon and the York Dungeon. I have actually investigated the York Dungeon too, but that's an episode for another day. The Edinburgh Dungeon is an underground tourist attraction in Edinburgh's city centre, on East Market Street, which uses live actor shows and interactive rides to show various historical events from Scottish history in a scary, fun style, suitable for all the family. Audience interaction is encouraged, and there are some suitably spooky sound effects, theatrical sets and performances. The shows are laced with tongue-in-cheek gallows humour, typical of the Dungeon brand. Exhibits at the time of this podcast being recorded are The Courtroom, which puts you inside a 17th century courtroom preceded over by Judge Mental The Torture Chamber The Cannibal's Cave The Lair of Sawney Bean and his family Someone I'll tell you all about later on The Murderers and Body Snatchers Bergen Hare And an exhibit called Drop Dead Where you'll climb aboard a ride and take on an actual gravity-defying drop while learning all about the executions at the gallows which stood on the grass market area of Edinburgh. Sounds pretty scary, right? But what about the genuine ghosts that haunt the dungeon? That's what you're here for, so let's get into it. The Edinburgh Dungeon is a location where genuinely strange happenings have been reported by staff, and it even made the national press in August 2001. The Edinburgh Dungeon had opened a few months earlier, in April, Friday the 13th of April no less, and ever since had been plagued by odd occurrences. One employee believed they saw a cloaked figure in the Sawney Bean exhibit, and several other members of staff felt uneasy in the dark eerie corridors of the dungeon. The Witchfinder boat ride broke down nine times during the month of August, And this was the final straw, as the claims that the building was haunted were taken so seriously that an exorcist was called in. The exorcist claimed that the unwelcome spirit may have been attracted to the dungeon by the actors, dressed in costume that encompass the broad spectrum of Edinburgh's horrible history, play-acting and telling gruesome stories for the entertainment of visitors. The exorcist and Mr Carlon boasted a 98% success rate at the time, and he was confident that the spirit had been put to rest. However, the ghostly going-ons continued to this very day, with numerous phenomena being reported, including staff frequently feeling as if someone has brushed up against them in one particular corridor, and on one horrifying occasion elsewhere in the building, a young boy was convinced invisible hands had grabbed at his legs, and he was rushed out of the building screaming. I investigated the Edinburgh Dungeon on the 28th of April 2012, alongside my brother Tom and my good friend John Crozier, while writing my book Ghosts of Edinburgh. And on that fateful night, I experienced the scariest thing to have ever happened to me before or since. I'll tell you all about it next on How Haunted.
I will now read an abridged version of the chapter called Frankenstein and Ah from my book Ghosts of Edinburgh. It's the first chapter in the book and focuses solely on the Edinburgh dungeon. Chilling, horrifying, unforgettable, and undoubtedly the scariest experience of my entire life. 13 hours earlier, I had left my home in Wall's End just outside Newcastle upon Tyne and could not have even begun to imagine just what was lying in wait for me after dark. We parked up on the outskirts of the city at 1.30pm. It was the wettest April since records began in 1910, and only a few days earlier we'd even had the occasional flurry of snow. Thankfully it was a rare dry day, with the sun shining particularly brightly, but with a nasty chill in the air. The three of us were in no hurry, and we didn't have anywhere in particular to be, so we walked slowly, without purpose, and took in everything about this fantastic city as we headed roughly in the direction of the city centre. We passed a telephone box carrying an advert for the Edinburgh Dungeon, our venue for tonight, with the tagline, Fun Drawn and Quartered, alongside a gruesome image. We headed down Victoria Street into the grass market, and then made our way back uphill towards Greyfriars Kirkyard. We stopped to pat the statue of Greyfriars Bobby on the head, an old Edinburgh tradition believed to bring luck, and I was hoping that the simple gesture may bring good fortune for our time in Edinburgh over the next year. I pointed out the Elephant House as we walked past the popular coffee shop, famous as being the birthplace of Harry Potter, as J.K. Rowling wrote the first book in the back room which overlooks Greyfriars Kirkyard. Out of the corner of my eye, I spied a poster that stopped me in my tracks. Vacancy for a Harry Potter, please apply within. Or at least that's initially what I thought it said. I turned to look at it properly and realised they were actually looking to take on a kitchen porter. As we took a stroll along the Royal Mile, we passed another poster advertising Edinburgh Dungeon. We had done the tourist thing of going on the Edinburgh Dungeon tour on our recce visit to Edinburgh a month earlier. It had been brilliant. Well acted, suitably gruesome and gory, while also being good fun for the children. There were also two rides on the tour, both scary for different reasons. One was called Extremis, and you found yourself strapped into a seat and dropped vertically from a great height, very, very fast. Then there was a slow-moving river ride into the lair of the cannibal Sawney Bean, where the scares are psychological, eerie whispered sound effects and total darkness, interrupted by intermittent flashing lights, which flashed just long enough to see the actor's arms reaching out for you. I knew the tale of Sawney Bean well, as I'd heard it around a decade earlier on a late-night local radio show, and to this day it remains one of the most disturbing stories that I've ever heard. Listen on, but please heed these words of warning, that this terrible tale of Scotland's most infamous cannibal is not for the faint of heart. Alexander Bean, known as Sawney Bean, was born a little over 15 miles from Edinburgh, in the county of East Lothian during the 16th century. His father was a hard-working man, digging ditches for a living, but when Sawney reached adulthood, he had no intention of pursuing an honest life. He met a woman by the name of Agnes Douglas, and they would begin a life together of one of the most abhorrent evil imaginable. Rather than finding a conventional home, they moved into a coastal cave together in Benane Head, positioned between Ballantrae and Girvan. It was an isolated spot, completely invisible when the tide was in, as the water came almost 200 yards into their subterranean abode, which stretched far below ground, some accounts claim as far as a mile down. 
This was the perfect hideout from where they could sneak out to rob and murder innocent passers-by at night, before returning to their cave, completely hidden from view. However, their despicable deeds didn't stop a thievery and murder. The still warm body of their victim would be taken back to the cave, where it would be hacked into quarters and sections roasted over a fire, before being devoured by Sony and Agnes. Any leftover meat would be salted and hung on hooks, and their innards would be pickled. Over the next 25 years, they produced six daughters, eight sons, 18 grandsons and 14 granddaughters, with many of the sons and daughters the result of inbreeding between Sony and Agnes and their children, and all 32 grandchildren the result of incest. The 48-member clan had no contact with the outside world, other than their vicious attacks under the cover of darkness, to satisfy their greed for gold and silver and feed their insatiable appetite for human flesh. It's believed that all told over a thousand men, women and children were murdered and consumed by the beans. Unsurprisingly, this number of missing people had caused a panic in the area, with several men being suspected, some of whom were arrested, but with no evidence and in some cases further disappearances while those men were in custody, no one was convicted. The local people were scared to leave their homes and would rarely travel alone. One fateful night a large group attacked a recently married couple who were riding the same horse as they returned from a fair. However, the man was armed with a sword and a pistol and held them at bay, charging at them on horseback in an attempt to escape the aggressors who had them surrounded. His wife was pulled to the ground and before he had a chance to react, a group of the beans swarmed her. She was screaming and begging for her husband to save her, but her screams turned to an indistinguishable gurgle as her throat was slit. Some of the cannibals sucked on the warm crimson liquid gushing from the gaping wound. Her eyes were wide with panic as others ripped open her stomach with their bare hands tearing out her entrails and gorging on them as her husband looked on horror-struck, frozen to the spot, unable to comprehend what was happening to his wife, who only moments earlier had been holding his waist, safe and sound, as they rode home. Suddenly the man snapped back into action and screamed for help, resigned to the fact that his beloved wife was gone, but the instinct for self-preservation kicked in. The beans closed in on the man as he readied himself to fight for his life, but in a rare moment of good fortune, his screams had been heard by a large group of people who'd also been returning from the fair, and they rushed to the man's aid. Sawney Bean and his family's horrendous atrocities had been witnessed for the first time in a quarter of a century, and they were forced to flee through the woodlands and the moors, which they knew so well, and they made it back to their cave unseen. The man had been the first person attacked by the Beans, who had lived to tell the tale, and that's exactly what he did. He told the group what had happened, and he showed them the almost unrecognisable remains of his wife's half-eaten corpse. He broke down as the horrific reality sunk in. The love of his life was gone, and his life would never be the same again. The group took the man to Glasgow, where the king himself, upon hearing of the man's appalling encounter, rounded up 400 men and a pack of bloodhounds and headed for the scene of the shocking crime. The man was asked to act as a guide, and was forced to return to the place that would haunt his every waking moment forevermore. When they finally arrived, there was no sign of Sawney Bean and his family. They searched far and wide, the dogs picked up no scent. It looked like they'd moved on and they'd missed the chance to catch this cannibalistic clan. They set up camp for the night, resigned that they would return to Glasgow empty-handed. But when they awoke the next morning, the tide was out, and in the distance they could see a small entrance to a cave in the rocks. A scout party went ahead to check it out, taking the dogs with them. When they reached the cave entrance, they immediately dismissed it as being far too inaccessible to possibly be the cannibal's hideout. However, the dogs began barking wildly, 
desperate to get to something inside the cave. The king and his men lit torches and made their way down into the dark, dank cavern. Not before long, they could see indiscernible objects swinging from the ceiling ahead of them. One of the soldiers at the front got close enough to realise what they were looking at, and many of them began to retch and vomit in disgust. Human legs, arms, torsos, feet and hands hung from metooks. It's even been written that tiny lifeless babies hung in their entirety from some of the hooks. Internal organs such as the hearts, livers, intestines and kidneys lay in pickle. A great hoard of money, 25 years worth of gold and silver and other items of value were piled up in enormous mountains of riches. They forced themselves to press on quietly and found Sony and his family at the back of the cave. There was a brief struggle, but the 400-strong company had the element of surprise and a huge numerical advantage and seized every member of the clan. The prisoners were marched in chains to Edinburgh. They were held at the Edinburgh Tollbooth, which once stood along the Royal Mile. It is at this point that versions of the story vary with two different, but equally gory, climaxes. The best-known version of this story is that Sony and his family were transferred to Leith, where they were to be executed without trial. Sony and the other men suffered a slow, lingering death. They had their genitals cut off and burned before their eyes. Then they had their hands and feet cut off and were left to die in agony, as one by one they bled to death. Agnes, her daughters and her granddaughters were forced to watch their menfolk suffer. Then it was their turn. Three large bonfires were lit and they were burned alive. The alternative ending takes place in Edinburgh rather than Leith, and the punishment dealt at the cannibalistic prisoners is the same in all but one instance, the fate of Sawney Bean himself. This version of the story says that so appalled were the people of the city upon hearing of the heinous acts committed that an example was to be made of the clan's leader. He was taken out on Edinburgh's Royal Mile where the people of the city had turned out in force. They wanted to see justice served and they were baying for his blood. Four horses were brought out and Sawney showed no resistance as his arms and legs were tied one to each animal. The crowd fell silent, and there was an audible collective intake of breath as they all knew what would come next. A gun was fired in the air, and all four horses bolted in opposite directions. The ropes tightened, and there was a split second of resistance before Sawney was torn apart, in a spectacular explosion of blood and gore. His head was connected to his right arm quarter, and as the horse galloped along the Royal Mile, and the people of the city cheered, Sawney began to laugh maniacally. This unsettled the crowd, and then with his dying breath, he screamed a curse upon the people of the city. Historians seem unable to agree wholly as to whether Sawney Bean actually ever lived, or whether the whole bloody tale was invented as far back as the 1700s to entertain and shock in equal measure. If it is a legend, it's taken a foothold in Scottish folklore, and has remained in the nation's consciousness in the form of newspaper and magazine articles, novels, and even a big screen adaptation. Wes Craven's 1973 The Hills Have Eyes, which was given a big budget remake in 2006, was based on the story of Sawney Bean, and one of the best known horror movies of all time, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is believed to have also taken inspiration from the tale. The flip side of this argument is that Sawney and his family did indeed exist, and most definitely killed and ate over a thousand innocent people but the exact year in which this took place has been muddied over time, making it difficult to check records and find evidence to back these claims up. The Guinness Book of Records must be firmly in the yes camp, because as recently as 1973, if you were to flick past the world's longest fingernails and the world's smallest cow, 
he'd eventually come to Britain's worst ever serial killer, which was attributed to one Alexander Sawney Bean. Whether Sawney Bean and his cannibalistic clan ever actually committed such unspeakable evil will likely never be proven one way or another. But one thing that isn't up for debate is that it's one hell of a story. We decided to go to the pub and we entered Frankenstein's, a bar just outside the gates of Greyfriars Kirkyard. I was glad to get inside the warmth of the pub and John had found us a table right in front of a roaring open fire. I wondered if the bar had been named for the famous movie monster because of the belief that Mary Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein, found her inspiration at Greyfriars Kirkyard only a stone's throw away, having been on honeymoon in Edinburgh at the height of the body snatching period, when resurrection men dug up bodies to sell for scientific experiments. Although there are many conflicting claims made by City all over Europe for being the birthplace of Shelley's genesis for the horrifying tale, the most popular theory being Geneva. As I queued at the bar to be served, I looked around the place. It was dark and gloomy, but that was obviously the look that they were going for with the movie posters of Frankenstein's monster that adorned every wall of the ground floor, which was the central of the three levels of the bar. I spotted a poster above the door that read, World Famous Frankenstein Pub, Established 1918, for connoisseurs of the macabre. Then an A4 certificate on the wall caught my eye. This was to certify that elite paranormal investigations had conducted an investigation at the pub and experienced evidence of paranormal activity. When it was my turn at the bar, I ordered a bottle of iron brew and a glass filled with ice and settled down with Tom and John for the first real chance any of us had had to relax since leaving home four hours earlier. After heading to our accommodation for the evening, a boffy near Musselburgh, and treating ourselves to an evening meal, 8.50pm saw us parking outside of the Edinburgh dungeon. The sun had set, and darkness had descended over the city. The icy chill of the wind was cutting right through us, so when we rang the buzzer at the entrance of the Edinburgh dungeon, we were thankful that the door opened fairly quickly. Helen, who I'd made arrangements with for our investigation, welcomed us inside. I introduced Tom and John, and Helen introduced us to Jenny, her colleague, who would also be on site throughout our investigation. Without further ado, Jenny took us on a tour of the building with all of the lights out, which was even creepier at night, with the daytime visitors replaced by an uneasy silence and terrifying lifelike mannequins at every turn. We would have access to the staff room, which we could use as our base for the investigation, and we would be able to access virtually the entire building. We couldn't access the areas of the two rides for obvious reasons, in particular a word of warning about stumbling into the boat ride area as we could easily drown. When we went into the area made up to represent Mary King's Close, Jenny and Helen stopped to tell us that this particular location may be of interest to us, as at one time it was a close, and the stone walls are genuine and original. Behind the solid stone walls are stables, and if we were feeling brave enough, there's a small doorway which goes into the area of what was once two stables. This area wasn't open to the public, as it's used for storage and as an archive, but if we wished to do so, we were welcome to check it out. The actors who work there don't like being in the Mary King's close area alone. They get creeped out. As we passed through a door, Jenny said that if we were feeling up to the challenge, we could tackle the mirror maze in the dark. It was a room with one route through and mirrors at every turn, making it tricky to find the correct route through without walking into a mirror. When we were back at base, John asked if the sound effects could be turned off. As in one area, made up to appear like Greyfriars Kirkyard, there were some horrifying sound effects on a loop, which included rattling chains, indistinguishable whispers, the cry of a raven, the hooting of owls, and then the scream of a woman in unimaginable pain. 
They were really quite loud and could be heard from some of the nearby rooms, which was unnerving. However, sadly it wasn't possible to turn them off, although we were assured that every other effect in the dungeon had been switched off. We were handed a radio in case we needed to contact them in the office. We entrusted this to John, and they kindly wished us luck for the evening. I checked my watch. It was 9.30pm, so to make the most of the time, we headed straight out into the dungeon and into our first room. The first room on the tour, the torture chamber. A large chair dominated the room, splattered with fake blood and gore. There were implements of torture placed nearby. On the daytime tours, the actor played the role of the torturer and would select one of the visitors to take their place in the chair, and some of the horrific forms of torture would be demonstrated. Truly man's inhumanity to man at its most brutal. Constant reminders of methods of medieval torture filled the room. Chains and cages hanging from the ceiling, a mannequin with arms and legs tied to a wheel, which was known as a breaking wheel, and another face contorted in agony, which is a common theme with the mannequins throughout the dungeon, tied down with a metal cage nailed to his chest. A rat is placed inside the cage, and burning hot coals placed on top, causing the rat to take the only way out, by eating its way through the man's chest. I positioned my digital voice recorder on the chair and pressed record. We spread ourselves out around the room and turned our torches off. Tom sat on the stage close to the torture chair, and he began to ask aloud. Tom explained why we were there, who we were, and he asked for some kind of sign that we weren't alone in that small room. I immediately heard two faint knocks, faint but clear, on a staircase behind me. I spoke up asking if anybody else had heard it, but they hadn't, possibly being hindered by the creepy sound effects that we could hear from the other area of the building. Encouraged by the start, Tom asked for a more definite sign. But this time our polite plea was unanswered. Not wanting to be deterred, Tom continued to ask aloud, and the three of us strained our ears to hear anything out of the ordinary, sounds that we could be sure hadn't been made by us. We looked around the room, our eyes having accustomed to the absolute darkness, the only light an eerie glow from an emergency exit sign. And for ten minutes, we saw and heard nothing. John then told us that he had the bizarre sensation of someone touching him lightly along his left arm. I asked for whoever was affecting John to do something more concrete, and John said quietly that the sensation seemed to have shifted from his left arm to his right. He rationalised that perhaps it was the air conditioning, so he remained still while I checked for possible sources of drafts around him. I couldn't feel anything, yet the light touches on his arms continued. Can you affect another part of me, he asked. But with this, the light touches stopped completely. Buoyed by the strange occurrence, we pressed on once more in the hope of communicating with unseen spirits amongst us. With a change of approach, Tom asked a series of questions, leaving a gap between each one. In the hope of hearing an answer, or capturing a response on my voice recorder that we couldn't hear ourselves at the time. He said, what is your name? I listened intently, hoping for something, anything to emanate from the darkness but I was listening so carefully that when the question was met by the recorded scream from along the corridor, it made me jump. Tom's questioning continued. Why do you remain in this building? Nothing. Did you live or work here in life? Nothing. Were you murdered? This time the question was met by a loud knock from somewhere within the room. All three of us heard it, but we couldn't establish the source. John and I urged Tom to continue. He asked again, Were you murdered? There was another loud knock in response, 
It seemed to be coming from the stage area where Tom was sat. Are you here because you had unfinished business? Knock. Do you want us to leave? This was met by two loud knocks. It appeared we'd been asked to leave, but we weren't going to be moved on quite so easily. Tom asked for a definite sign that we should leave. Someone to touch us, move something, speak to us. And we'd leave immediately without question. However, perhaps the spirit was angry or upset with us for not leaving at the first time of asking, as we didn't experience anything over the next 10 minutes or so before we unanimously agreed to move on to the next area and begin our second vigil. We moved along to the mortuary at 9.55pm and the first thing that hit us upon entering was how much louder the spooky recording was in this room, as it was the room immediately before the Greyfriars Kirkyard room. On the daily tour here, an actor, playing the role of the assistant to a doctor by the name of Robert Knox, would explain how two local men named William Burke and William Hare have been providing them with fresh bodies for medical research. Initially they were able to supply fresh cadavers by digging up the recently deceased, but now the entrepreneurial duo had taken to murder in order to satisfy the increased demand for bodies. Burke and Hare, Irish immigrants living in Edinburgh, murdered 17 people during a 12-month period from November 1827 to the end of October 1828, at which point they were caught. The evidence was not overwhelming, so William Hare was offered immunity from prosecution if he testified against his partner. Hare's testimony led to Burke being hanged on the 28th of January 1829, and it was seen fitting that his corpse should be publicly dissected at the Edinburgh Medical College. His skin was tanned and used to make items including a pocketbook and a calling card case. His skeleton is still on display to this day at the University of Edinburgh's Anatomical Museum. The room is dominated by a large table at the foot of three rows of lean-on seats, upon which the visitors would sit on the tours. On the table is a fake body, ripe for dissection. Tom and I sat in rows of seats at opposite ends of the room. I sat in the front row, and Tom sat in the second row. John stood next to the table at the front, upon which I had left my digital voice recorder, capturing his every word as he spoke aloud, explaining that we come in total respect. We simply want to know more about the spirits with us, and gain evidence of life after death. He requested that if anybody could hear his voice, could they give him some kind of a sign that they are there, touch one of us, knock, speak to us, affect us in some way, show yourselves to us. I thought I saw something over my left shoulder move. Over my left shoulder was the darkest corner of the room. I told the others that I may have seen something, but it may well have just been my imagination, so they suggested, as I feared they would, that I should go and sit in that corner. The room was pretty dark to begin with, but a couple of security lights meant that we could move around safely and easily without the need for a torch. However, I can't express just how dark this corner was. I felt as if the darkness engulfed me as I took my seat, and Tom and John said that they could no longer see me at all. John began once more to speak out, his voice filling the room. He asked a variety of questions, inquiring as to any spirit's name, their connection to the building, and whether they wanted us to leave. Sadly, we didn't experience anything out of the ordinary to any of these questions, so I suggested that we try a different approach. I brought with me an EMF meter, which is a device used to measure electromagnetic fields. It was originally designed to help diagnose problems with electrical wiring and electrical shielding effectiveness, but it has been adopted by ghost hunters to determine the presence of spirit. There is a widespread belief that ghosts emit an electromagnetic field that can be detected by one of these devices that cost as little as £20. 
and any unexpected change in AMF meter readings may be due to paranormal activity. There is no solid evidence to back these claims up, but that's not to say that we should dismiss it as not being a valid experiment. The team and I had discussed this previously, and we'd agreed that an unexpected reading is by no means proof of a ghost being present with us, but we were hoping that we would have unusual readings over a continuous period of time in response to asking a spirit to move closer to the small grey box, or perhaps in conjunction with another potentially paranormal occurrence. John took the device from my bag and he pressed and held the button in. It began a gentle tick tick tick, as the device sought out electromagnetic fields. I asked for any spirits in the room with us to let us know by approaching John. No sooner had I finished talking that the tone emitted from the meter went higher, meaning the reading was increasing. I asked John if he had moved, and he said he was stood perfectly still. I asked the spirits, could they move even closer to John? The reading increased again to an 8, this is on a scale of 1 to 10, emitting a high-pitched whine. This remained constant as I spoke the words John did undoubtedly not want to hear. Could you move even closer to John? So close you could touch him. So close that he could feel your breath on his face. The AMF meter spiked, reading off the scale beyond a 10, and the high-pitched whine had become an electronic scream. This lasted for no more than a couple of seconds and then it completely stopped. The reading returned to a 1, and the noise was nothing more than a low ticking, as the device searched in vain for an electromagnetic field. We persevered without further results, and at 10.15pm we decided that with so many other areas of the building still to investigate, we'd have to move on. The next area was made up like the creepy graveyard of Greyfriars. The room had chairs made up like gravestones, around the wall of the room. The wall was painted with creepy trees bare of their leaves. A church steeple, a city wall with spikes along the top, all bathed in eerie moonlight. The recording that we could hear throughout the building was coming from this room, and it was very, very loud. This would prove a major disadvantage to our vigil in this room, as we'd have to focus on seeing something or feeling something, as we wouldn't be able to hear anything over the sound effects. I spoke aloud, introducing the three of us. I asked if someone was there with us, if they could show themselves. After ten minutes of inactivity, and seemingly no response to our request, we decided to give up the ghost, if you pardon the pun. It's possible that someone or something had been trying to communicate with us, but we knew it would be difficult to identify with all of the noise in the room. At 10.25pm, I led the way along a dark corridor, almost bumping into a mannequin made up like a 14th century plague doctor, complete with the mask with a beak, which would be filled with aromatic herbs to keep the bad smells away, which they believed at the time carried the Black Death. We turned the corner and entered the Mary King's close area, the words of Jenny from our walk around earlier still fresh in my mind. This is the area where the staff don't like to come on their own. The first thing we all commented on was how quiet it was. In every area we visited so far, we'd been able to hear the recording from the Greyfriars Kirkyard section, but it was totally silent here. When we entered, the wall on our left was solid brickwork, as this area, as we were told earlier, was once an actual close and beyond the ancient stonework was a large room which was originally two stables. There were two huge windows in the wall, but we couldn't see through them as they were dusty and dirty, which only added to the pretense of the area appearing as Mary King's close will have done at the height of the Black Death. With time at a premium, I was keen to see what lay behind the door to the old stable, and upon heaving it open, it was clear that it wasn't used often. There were a few old chairs and mannequins and a locked archive. John said that he would wait outside for me and Tom. He wasn't scared of what may have lay within. It was far simpler than that. 
he didn't fancy the three-foot step down from the door to the floor level within the room. Head torch equipped, and my voice recorder and camera in my pockets, I left my bag behind with John, who illuminated the area for me with his torch as I jumped down. I turned my head torch on and began to explore as Tom climbed down behind me. The walls were all the original brickwork, and I looked up to see the curved ceiling way up high. Er, what's that weird smell, said Tom in disgust, as he reached the ground level and dusted himself down. I knew the smell he'd meant. I'd smelt the same thing hundreds of times before, most usually in castles or abandoned mansions. It was the musty smell of an old, unused building. I suggested to John that if he was to close the door, we could spend ten minutes quietly in here, while he sat quietly out in the area, mocked up like Mary King's close. He said he was happy to do that and he wished us luck, as he struggled to push the big heavy door closed. Tom and I turned off our torches, and the darkness was absolute. Conscious of John being in the corridor outside, I spoke quietly and asked that if we weren't alone for somebody to let us know. This was met, seemingly on cue, by a bang, which seemed to have come from outside the door where John was. I whispered to ask Tom if he'd heard it and he had. When we both heard footsteps, which seemed to come from either just inside or just outside of the room. Again, Tom confirmed he'd heard these two. The rational and probable cause of these noises was John wandering round outside. So I asked Tom to open the door so we could find out where he was. Tom clicked on his torch and slowly pulled the door open. The sight that greeted us made us both jump. There was a large, man-shaped figure filling the void, standing perfectly still, leaning into the doorway, staring down at us. Tom shone his torch on it, and we were relieved to see that it was John. We heard a bang out there, did you hear it? I asked. No. We heard footsteps too, definitely footsteps from near to that door. Were you walking around? I added. No, I've not moved a muscle since I closed the door. Tom looked at me. I looked back at him. So since you closed the door, you've been stood perfectly still, staring at the closed door. Well, yeah. Fair enough. John's actions may have been a little bizarre, but this was promising. The bang and the footsteps Tom and I had clearly heard were still to be explained. I asked John to grab my AMF meter from my bag and pass it down to Tom. Since the sound seemed to have come from somewhere near the entrance to the room, Tom moved to that area and held the button down on the meter. I asked for any spirits with us to move nearer to Tom. We persisted with this for five minutes, with minor fluctuations but nothing out of the ordinary. I suggested that we rejoin John back in the Merry King's area and see what that had to offer. After clambering back up and out of the room, we walked a little way down from the entrance next to the doorway to the next room. Tom and I sat quietly and expectantly on the ground, as John asked a series of questions and made a number of requests, all of which were met by silence. I decided to give the EMF meter another try, and as I pressed the button down on the meter, I asked for them to come closer to me. The meter, which had initially registered a two, jumped to a four. Come on, come even closer, challenged Tom. It went up to a five. Come on, come and play with us. We'd love to be your friends, he added. It stayed static on a six. What are you frightened of? Come and stand right next to us. Or are you scared? Tom goaded the spirits. The meter got louder as it registered a steady eight. Then ten seconds later it dropped right back down to a zero and a constant tick, tick, tick as the electromagnetic fields had vanished. Damn, I felt like we were getting... I stopped Tom mid-sentence as I'd heard a disembodied voice within the room what sounded to me like a female, or females, talking. It seemed I wasn't the only person, as John had heard this too. We sat silently, waiting, hoping. And we didn't have to wait long, 
we heard it again, this time all three of us. We sat silently, waiting to see if the voices returned. Silence was broken briefly by two loud thuds, which appeared to come from directly above us. But before we could address the noise from above, the voice returned. It was definitely female. But it was at that moment that John seemed to have solved the mystery. He proposed that it was most likely the station master's voice coming from the Tannoy system at the Edinburgh Waverley train station, which was just behind the dungeon. We heard it several times across the next few minutes and agreed that it did seem the most likely explanation. At 11pm we moved on, through the doors into the William Wallace room. Half the room is taken up by a stage with three decapitated heads on spikes, the central one of which has William Wallace's face projected onto it during the tour. And it's suggested that he's so tough that chopping his head off didn't even kill him. There's a vomit bucket to one side of the stage and a chopping block and an axe to the other. A sign reads AD 1305, 23rd of August, the main event. The execution of the freedom fighter William Wallace. Hacked off limbs and gore are scattered across the stage. The first thing that struck us was how cold this room was, as so far the rest of the building had been a comfortable room temperature. I placed my voice recorder on a stool next to the chopping block. I took a few photos and we sat in silence for five minutes. It was really quiet and very, very dark. Five minutes passed uneventfully, so I attempted to stir up some activity by asking aloud. We heard three loud bangs. We couldn't establish where they'd came from, but we'd felt them as we were all sat on the stage. We continued to ask for signs, but ten minutes later, we agreed to head back to base and with an hour and 45 minutes left before we had to leave, we could have a drink and discuss how best to make the most of our remaining time. Or at least that was the plan. With the building being a hellish warren of macabre exhibits and creepy corridors with multiple routes to any one room, we weren't actually sure of the exact route back to the base. I clicked on my head torch and tentatively opened one of the three possible doors out of the room. This new room was bathed in torchlight and I immediately recognised it as being a room we'd passed through on the daytime tour a few weeks earlier, a mirror maze called Labyrinth. This was good news, as we knew this led to the entrance and the winding staircase back to the base. When we tackled this maze of mirrors on our previous visit, we'd simply followed the kids in front of us through. There were a couple of safe paths through, but there's also a fairly good chance of walking straight into one face first. Oh great, muttered Tom as he popped his head round the doorway to see what lay beyond. There's not much chance of encountering spooks in here, but a fairly high chance of smashing my face straight in at one of those huge mirrors. I reassured him that would be fine if we just used our torch beams to check each mirror and take our time. I led the way with Tom behind me and John lagging way behind. The room was noticeably silent and almost completely pitch black. Thinking nothing of this fairly arbitrary room as anything more than a shortcut, I carefully navigated the first few mirrors. Then it happened. And it was so unexpected, so horrifying, and it was undoubtedly the most terrifying thing that any of us had experienced, not just on this investigation, but in our entire lives. The room was filled by a deafening, high-pitched female scream of terror and anguish. I froze, struggling to comprehend what was going on. It almost seemed to be happening in slow motion. I was in for an even bigger scare, as I heard a separate shrill scream inches from my ear, and an icy cold hand gripped my arm tightly. My blood ran cold, and every hair on my body stood on end, as I started to genuinely believe that we might be under attack from something. Behind me, I could hear John's panic screams, which alternated between blasphemy and swearing over and over again, as the hellish shrieking continued. 
I didn't want to look, but eventually I turned around to face my assailant and I came face to face with Tom, who'd screamed and grabbed me in fright. I looked beyond my petrified brother and John's face was twisted in fear and panic. He was running backwards and forwards, arms outstretched, in blind terror, trying to escape our unseen attacker while screaming and pleading for someone, anyone to help him. The female blood-curdling scream stopped as suddenly as it had begun, but another nasty surprise awaited us. Right next to where John was running back and forth, a light switched itself on, and a figure stood up and looked at us. We ran away. The careful navigation of the mirror maze was abandoned, as all three of us fled as if our lives depended on it, dodging and weaving between the mirrors. A few seconds later, we found ourselves in the reception area of the dungeon, and we all felt foolish and embarrassed as it dawned on us what had happened. The effects in the dungeon had all been turned off, but somehow this one had been overlooked, and a motion-activated scream had sounded when we passed through the room. The figure that had jumped up was a spooky skeleton to frighten kids during the daytime tours. It had most certainly succeeded in giving us the biggest scare of our lives. Tom kept giggling, chastising himself for being so frightened, and having let out a high-pitched scream and grabbed me. John was leaning over the counter, holding his chest and trying to catch his breath. We returned to base and Tom was still giggling and shaking his head. We had a drink and John had a puff on his inhaler and then ate a Kit Kat to help calm himself down as we listened back to John's recording from a few minutes earlier in the labyrinth. Ten minutes had passed since a terrifying ordeal we had endured at the hands of the man-made effects designed to give people a fright. Tom and I burst out laughing as we listened. John could see the funny side but was still struggling to catch his breath. We knew that we had just over an hour and a half left so we had to press on and we quickly discussed the order in which we tackle the remaining rooms. The next room was a courtroom. It was made up like a dock with mannequins conducting proceedings with a view over the rows of seats, which seemed to be reclaimed church pews. Rows of shelves were painted to appear like they were full of books. Tom sat in the second row and John sat in the back row. I placed my voice recorder on the front row, pressed record and then sat down in a large seat made up to look like a throne, with my back to the wall of books. John spoke. Is there anyone else here besides the three of us? We're here with respect. Please speak with us. We mean you no harm. If you are here, please give us a sign of your presence. Make a sound. Move an object. Touch one of us. A few minutes frustratingly passed by without any response to John's questions, except the eerie screams of the sound effects which we could hear again. We tried a change of approach, and Tom asked some questions. Please speak to us. If we can't hear you, we have recording equipment which may be able to. How many people are in this room? We all heard a knock which seemed to come from the judge's dock. Tom repeated his question, how many people are in this room? We heard a knock again, this time from the wall painted to look like a bookcase that I was sat with my back to, scarily close to me. Again Tom repeated the question, and as soon as he'd finished speaking, the light through the window of the door was suddenly blocked out by somebody walking past. I looked over to Tom and John, who were looking expectantly around the room, waiting for another knock. I told them that somebody had walked past the door, and realised that from where they were, they couldn't see the door, so couldn't have seen what I had. I popped my head out of the door, expecting to see Jenny or Helen, as the staff room area was nearby, but there was no one there. John radioed through, asking if anyone was moving around, but the response came through loud and clear that they weren't even on the same level of the building as we were. We tried to recreate the light being blocked out, and I established that whoever it was who'd walked past and blocked out the light 
must have been roughly a foot shorter than me and I stand at 5 foot 10. Tom's questioning had generated the results so he asked aloud again, asking for whoever was outside the room to come closer, come and join us inside the room. I quietly took the AMF meter from my bag and held my thumb on the button on the side. It made a fairly quiet tick 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 and Tom encouraged any spirits with us to come closer to me. I felt like something was going to happen but we persisted for another 15 minutes without it materialising. We moved to the only exhibit we'd yet to investigate, the Sony Bean Room. I checked my watch just in time to see it tick past midnight. The room is an exact reconstruction of the cave that is believed to have been home to the cannibal and his incestuous family, complete with blood and jointed human remains hung up ready to be eaten. On the daily tour there are two actors playing Sony's children who explain that their dad has gone out looking for food. On the day we took the tour, one of the actors playing Sony's daughter pointed out that her ma would love Tom as he's got a massive heed. The tour is quite jumpy as the actors move around really quickly, dodging and weaving through little tunnels and shortcuts behind the scenes in the cave. You're forced to constantly try and keep your eyes on both of them and show where they'll pop up next. We spread out as best we could in the fairly small room and I hung the voice recorder from a pillar. We clicked off our torches and stood silently in the darkness. We'd only waited for a few minutes, but it seemed like a lot longer, as my eyes struggled to adjust to the blackness, which seemed to be closing in all around me. After a few minutes, I suggested that we ask specific questions. And I asked out for whoever was with us, and it did feel like we weren't alone, to let us know that they were there. Could you give us some kind of a sign? Knock, talk to us, touch one of us. I waited expectantly. Something had to happen. I asked again, specifically asking the spirits to copy my knocking. I knocked twice. No response. It still felt like we weren't alone. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it felt as if someone was with us, watching us, capable of letting us know that they were there, but not wanting to. It wasn't paranoia, as I've been in similar situations in similar locations many, many times before. Sadly, the Sawdy Bean Room hadn't produced anything out of the ordinary in the 30 minutes we spent in there. The time was approaching 12.30am, and with only 30 minutes left, we had a decision to make. Should we remain here, or head to a location we'd already been to, which we felt might yield better results. We all agreed to return to the Mary King's Close exhibit. Back in the Mary King's Close area, John and Tom both started complaining about how cold it was. It was definitely colder than it had been earlier, but I didn't seem to be feeling the cold as badly as they both were. Tom knocked on the wall asking for whoever was there to copy him. There was no response. After a long night, it was growing increasingly frustrating as no matter what we asked, no matter what we tried, we weren't getting the results we hoped for. We had to keep the faith and hope that our persistence would pay off. I casually mentioned that I had this feeling that we were being followed around the building by a child. I couldn't explain why at the time and I still can't explain it now. Although the light blocked out from the doorway when we were in the courtroom could have been somebody the height of a child. Tom said that he also felt like a child was with us in the first room we investigated, the torture chamber, and he couldn't explain why either. If there was a child with us, perhaps he or she was too shy to show themselves to us. I challenged them to shake the curtain at the opposite end of the room from where we were sat, on the cold, hard floor. I suggested they could shake the curtain and run away if they were shy. Sadly, nothing happened. We continued to attempt to rouse the spirits of the Edinburgh dungeon unsuccessfully, and when the time reached 12.50am, it was time to draw our investigation to a close. We headed back to base to gather our belongings. Without even discussing it, we avoided the mirrored labyrinth room and took the long way back through the Greyfriars Kirkyard room, the mortuary and the torture chamber. 
Back in the staff room, John radioed that we'd finished our investigation and Jenny and Helen came to see us. So, are we haunted? Helen cheerily inquired as they walked in and took a seat. We recounted the highlights of our evening, and it was only when we did this that I'd realised how many experiences we'd actually had at the Edinburgh Dungeon. The strange footsteps in the stables, the figure walking past the window, the EMF meter behaving strangely and on command in the mortuary. And we told of our heart-stopping experience in the labyrinth. They both burst out laughing and then apologised as they claimed they must have forgotten to turn the effect off. We thanked them so much for giving up their Saturday night so that we could experience the Edinburgh Dungeon and we headed out into the night. It was bitterly cold, so I pulled my coat tightly around me in a hopeless attempt to keep the freezing temperatures at bay. Although the almost sub-zero temperatures didn't seem to be bothering the scantily clad revellers who were enjoying the famous Edinburgh nightlife. We were back at the car a few moments later, I turned the heat up high, and we left the city centre and made our way back to the Bothy at Musselburgh. Once we'd left the A1, I navigated a series of narrow, unlit, winding country lanes. It was all very Scooby-Doo. The radio was turned down low, but I couldn't help but smile to myself as the DJ on the local radio put on Thriller by Michael Jackson, the lay king of pop. It seemed apt. Out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the temperature display on my dashboard drop from one degree down to zero. We were back at the Bothy around half an hour after leaving Edinburgh. Before we'd gone out, we'd left the heater turn up as high as it would go, but it was still a bit chilly. We'd all brought sleeping bags, so we settled down as best we could to try and get some much-needed sleep. Once the light was out, we talked quietly, but excitedly, about the experience we'd just shared at the Edinburgh Dungeon, until one by one, we fell asleep. Thank you so much for joining me once again. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you will see photos galore relating to the Edinburgh Dungeon. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get access to exclusive episodes where you will join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened. If you were to join today, you've already got access to an episode of Chillingham Castle, dating back from 2015, my Halloween special, which was at Middlethorpe Hall Hotel in York, a May episode from the Edinburgh Vaults, which is an enhanced version of episode 10 of the podcast, which includes audio from the investigation. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. I have a copy of my book, Ghosts of Yoga, for grabs. If you'd like to enter, it's incredibly easy to do. All you need to do is follow me on Twitter and or Instagram. My username for both is HowHauntedPod. You'll get one entry for each, so you can enter twice by following on both. The competition will end on the 24th of December 2022, and the winner will be announced on Twitter in the first podcast episode after the closing date. Next time out, we return to England's capital and to a cemetery established in 1839, 
which has around 53,000 graves and 170,000 people buried beneath the earth there. This cemetery has a reputation dating back to the 1960s, when the cemetery's gates were locked and it was left unused. Tales of men in dark robes practising dark rituals in the abandoned cemetery after dark. Stories of phantoms haunting the graveyard and the surrounding alleyways. Red-eyed demons seen staring at people through the fence. And most famously, a vampire. But are these just stories and legends, or is this cemetery really home to all manner of paranormal entities? Let's find out together next week, when we take a look at Highgate Cemetery. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? How Haunted?